No, that's not the sound of an alarm that you're hearing, even though it might sound like one. But that's actually the sound of a beep baseball. And beep baseball is the big topic here on episode 12 of the Eyes Free Sports Podcast. Once again, this is your host, Greg Limber. On this episode, we caught up with someone who I consider to be a walking encyclopedia of beat baseball, someone who's extremely passionate about the sport and raising awareness about it, and a longtime member of the National Beat Baseball Association. So, play ball! Alright, so welcome to episode 12 of the Eyes Free Sports Podcast. And on this episode, it's a true pleasure to have Steve Guerra joining us. Steve is the secretary of the NBBA, which is the National Beat Baseball Association. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. Sure thing. Hey, beat baseball has, has always been by far my favorite sport and the one I've played most. So really looking forward to this conversation and talking about uh, this awesome sport. Agreed. So uh, if we could just start off, Steve, could you just give kind of a bio of yourself, you know, where you're from originally and, uh, sure. you know, your childhood and any education and, and your career? Sure. I uh, originally am from Long Island, New York, a town of about 70,000 people named Freeport, which is about 15 minutes from where the World Trade Center was, if you will. And I grew up there. I was mainstreamed in public schools all the, all the way through from K through 12th grade. The interesting part is I say K through 12, but I didn't. they didn't allow me to go to kindergarten because I was blind. And they didn't feel that I could uh, learn in the, in the same way as other students could. Uh, but that didn't prevent my twin brother, Frank, who also had a similar eye condition, from going and participating. But he could see he was legally blind. In that, with my blindness, I was born with congenital cataracts, and at the age of two, my brother and I were both uh, had medication put into our eyes. The hope was to have the cataracts deteriorate into air bubbles. At the time, and when the, if you will, the when the eyes became ready for surgery, which generally took anywhere between one and a half and three years then the simple process of scraping the eye of the cataract was the ultimate goal, was the, uh, the you know, objective as to what was going to take place. That didn't necessarily take place in any of my eyes, either one of my eyes. It did happen in one of my brother's eyes. So the procedure went on, and unfortunately, as a result of the eye surgeon deviating from standard procedure, a post-operative infection started in both my eyes, which caused my blindness and causing a whole lot of craziness that went on in the surgery and after the surgery and such like that. The surgery did take place for my brother and did work in one of his eyes. So he could see out of one of his eyes, which was rendering him legally blind. And after that, um, after those surgeries, that was, I've had some other exploratories since then, some other eye procedures and eye, eye surgeries, but, uh, the post-operative infection after the original surgery of cataract removal destroyed any possibility of having sight. So I've been totally blind since June of 1974. Nonetheless, when my brother was in kindergarten and I was, if you, I had a teacher for the visually impaired, which then was called an itinerant teacher, come hmm. into the home and teach me some basic things or whatever. But I went on to first grade like anybody else and... Uh, was not made to feel any different from anybody else to the point where our, 
my first grade teacher gave me a pen and told me to write my name the first day of school. And I didn't know how to do that. I mean, <laughs> everybody else did. I didn't. Yeah. So I just, I just did. I can't, you know. So, but then I went on to learn in a matter of six months uh, Braille. And I've been reading Braille ever since. And Braille now is, you know, it's as an adult, you use it as much as you can put it into your life. Could I, in, where I can read web Braille from National Library Service, Bard Service, or I'll read um, Braille that gets mailed to me from different organizations and such like that. I still read Braille as much as I would like to. And one of the companies I contract with as a, in my career uh, is Humanware. So I support all their Braille products. And uh, so I, I, I very much am a Braille user on a regular basis. It, there certainly says a lot for people who do not use Braille on a regular basis, how they could maybe forget it. I don't know. I don't see how that's possible. It's much like riding a bike. Once you learn how to do it, you never forget. It's a, Braille is a, a wonderful medium for those who have no other alternatives. Uh, and again, I use it as much as I would like to use it. And as secretary, I, with the access to an embosser that I have, I have brailled out the National Beat Baseball Association bylaws and rules. And th this says a lot for something for me to sit on my couch and have those two documents under my finger that I can read where I can. There's something once you learn how to read Braille that you never want to not want to read Braille. It's a it's a wonderful medium. And it's just unfortunately, it's not explored by many people who are younger at some point as it should be but that, i mean that's that's a soapbox that i'll leave for another day it's a uh, but I, I i love braille i love reading braille whether it be in electronic format on a braille display or under finger on a uh, sheet of braille paper um so being mainstreamed all throughout high, all throughout public school in freeport new york i went through all the went throughout the whole school i was the first blind person obviously to uh go through the district and uh, there's others who have followed behind me. But I was a, uh, I really set the pace as to taking part in activities. You know, the, we speak of in 2020 about accessibility and about integration. And it's a wonderful thing. And it's, everyone has to be their own advocate for what their, what their wants and their needs are. I did that back in the 1970s. And in the 1980s, because if I didn't speak up, I didn't, I, I couldn't do anything. I, could, I wasn't going to be able to take part in anything. Uh, this went from as far as taking part in gym class and, uh, and with phys ed teachers who were, were reluctant because they, they, at that time, the curriculums of people who were becoming teachers did not have anything integrated into it to how do you incorporate an individual with a physical disability at that point or someone who can't see or can't hear or has a missing limb and such? It was unheard of. Now right. that's a whole different other story. Um, so, I mean, I met with a lot of challenges throughout school and I took that rocky road and I paved it smooth for people behind me who could have an easier transition and not have to worry about the hiccups of what I had to deal with. But I, I looked at those as challenges that I could control and I could overcome with minimal difficulty. 
Um, and it, it went as far, it, it really went as far as in every aspect of, 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 of being a, a school-aged individual, not only just taking part in gym classes, but wanting to take part in the high school marching band and doing their routines. And with the support of my parents, my dad said to our the high school marching band teacher or marching band marching band uh, instructor, my son's going to be in your marching band for the next four years when I was a freshman. And that was enough. It, the meeting the meeting at that point was uh, it was a meeting between the principal, the uh, in the teacher, my parents, a mobility instructor. And far as my father was concerned, after making that statement within the first 30 seconds of the meeting, the meeting was over. There was nothing else to, to, to discuss other than how are we going to do this? Not that if we're going to do it, how are we going to do it? And that's how I have always maintained myself. That's how can I resolve things for people? And that's how what I've done in starting in college and then going into my career, the different career track uh, tracks that I've done. Uh, I've always been a problem solver. How can I resolve this? And um, I I use that on a regular basis. There's always a, there's always a solution, whether it be temporary or permanent. And if we can find temporary solution, which can become a permanent one, that's great. If it's a permanent one, then fantastic. Then case closed, resolved. Um, but it's really where you have to be an advocate for yourself and really determine, really know, and be confident about who you are and what you are and have that foundation of values that is not shakable in any way. Um, and if you do that and you put that forward every day when you get out of bed and, and start your day every day, then you'll be on a forward role and you'll be ahead of everyone. And yes, as a blind individual in school, in college, in my life, I, I've always had to do 150% better than my sighted counterparts. And is that a standard for me? Yeah, it is. And sometimes you don't want to, and sometimes you're like, I don't want to try that hard, but you have to. And you have, I, I have resigned myself to that, that, look, am I ever going to be considered equal? I don't know, and I don't really care. I'm just going to put my best foot forward every day, and if I can... If I can bring laughter to my life and and smile and laugh, and I can show, be a good example for my daughter, then I've accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. But so for the most part, after high school, I went on to college. I attended Hofstra University. After that, I went right into the workforce. Uh, I took a little longer in college to complete it. That's my own doing. But then I went into the workforce, and I was a, a job recruiter for the people with disabilities. In New York City, uh, in I call the uh, city of insanity, <laughs> uh, and um, it's uh, I did that for a little less than a year. Then I came out to Long Island and was able to get a job in a bank um, in customer service. And then I learned from a very dear friend the inner workings and how to do things with IT, and uh, started my help desk, if you will, career uh, for many companies problem solving and that's where I really got my teeth cut was on in, in an enterprise environment uh, working in that arena and then that took me all the way through for seven years um, through a couple different companies 
And then I went to work for a company that everyone knows the name, but now is part of uh, LSNS Products. It's called Independent Living Aids. I was an assistive technology specialist for them for, uh, gosh, for almost 10 years. And then in 2008, I made the decision from leaving New York and coming out to Minnesota because I had met someone. And uh, we began dating and we got married and we had my daughter. And I've been in, in Minnesota ever since 2008. Uh, beat baseball, though, has really been – well, sports have always been part of my life in, in going back to the days of, again, advocating. You know, right. when, I was, when I was 12 years old in seventh grade, I wanted to wrestle. It was the only sport that I think I could do without having any barriers. You know, hmm. were there barriers in swimming or football or baseball? Of course there were, but – uh, I wrestled all throughout junior high school and high school, and uh, I loved it. A uh, lot of life lessons there. A great support structure with coaches and, and teammates and stuff like that. And I, I'll be honest with you, I, I did not excel in that. For hmm. the reason is that I used to get really, really, really bored at division and county tournaments between matches. Like, okay, I'm bored. You know, I'm and there was no, I didn't bring any talking book. I didn't have talking books at the time to listen to. And I was in school. I, I didn't want to read any more than I needed to. Um, so there was, everybody else was watching wrestling matches. And I'm just like, ho-hum, I'm just going to sit here, you know. Um, yeah. And when it came when it came time for me to go and wrestle, I'm like, I so don't, I so don't want to be here. You know, I don't, I don't want to be doing this. But I mean, I love the sport. Then when I was, uh. 15, 16 years old, I, uh, with a dear friend who's part of the Austin Blackhawks right now, Dan, Danny Fabiano, um, we uh, were introduced to goalball, hmm. and I fell in love with that sport, and uh, we took part in the USABA Nationals in uh, Mount Claire, New Jersey, 1985, and then wow. uh, with, with goalball, uh, when we got introduced to goalball, we went over to visit, we went over to the site where they were going to show us how to play goalball. It was on a field in a park in in, uh, in East Meadow, New York, called Eisenhower Park. Uh, it's where the Long Island Bombers hold, hold their um, yearly tournament nearby there um, every year now. Anyway, the um, I saw beat baseball for the first time, and I'm like, I want to do that, you know. And it's <laughs> because I mean, it was a you everyone was blindfolded and the blind people were hitting a pitch ball. I'm like, I want to do that, and uh, so <laughs> I I um. We, we joined a team out of Long Island called Out of Sight. And um, we played beat baseball. We played in a little bit of a different way. We played on a dirt. We played on a, uh, a softball field. We played on a dirt infield, and the outfield was grass. But um, then we went to tournaments, and we played on all grass fields. So, I mean, I played with those guys from 88 to 91, and then I attempted to finish college and get – started working because you know it, it's 2020 now but 1993 1994 you know it we were just in that in that time frame of switching over from dos computers to windows computers and right. the thoughts on very and a lot of people's minds minds are with this new introduction of windows is it going to ruin the opportunities for blind people to get jobs and uh, hmm. i i thankfully landed a situation that was able to work and be gamefully employed and travel to and from New York city every day, which was a, 
which was crazy in itself, having a guide dog too at that point. But, you know, so I took some time off between 91 and 95 and playing beat baseball. I think maybe I should have, if I could have gone back and done things differently, I would have maybe attempted to try to play then during that time frame. Uh, but that was a whole different other time frame in my life and era. Uh, but picked up beat baseball with a recreational group in 95 and, me and a friend of mine, another dear friend of mine, James Hughes, uh, who was plays with the Long Island Bombers, is now retired. We started up the Long Island Bombers in '97 uh, and attended our first World Series in Glenview, Illinois, in 2002 um, as a team. I went on because I was I was always looking at the big picture. Uh, I was always curious as to okay, we have beat baseball. We have a, a we have a competitive team now. How do we get involved with playing competitive beat baseball against other competitive teams? And there, there came into my understanding the National Beat Baseball Association. And uh, I went to my first board meeting in November of 2000 in Houston and fell in love with the organization and uh, joined as a member and brought my team to the World Series in 2002 and uh, joined the board in 2001 and held a bunch of different roles and uh, – all the way up into 2006, I uh, ran for secretary because, unfor- sadly, unfortunately, no one else wanted to do it. Uh, hmm. uh, and we'll get into that in a second. But it's sure. uh, so I, I became secretary in 2006 and still hold that position today. But I brought the Long Island Bombers from 2002 over an, a six to seven year period of time um, to the World Series. And then when I moved to Minnesota, I went and joined a recreational team called the Minnesota Fighting Lions. And we started in the, in the, uh, the spring of 2010, the Minnesota Millers. And we came to the World Series in Rochester, Minnesota that year um, for the first time and uh, as a team. And we've been building it. We've been to every World Series since. So it's, it's, it's been a wonderful ride. I mean, I can't – I don't think I'd ever want to go back and change any part of that. I had fun at every, every turn – and every opportunity that was granted, um, the Minnesota Millers are, the, are a team that I saw grow from something that something out of nothing. And uh, I presented a situation to everyone, all the players on the recreational team, like, "Hey, I would like to start a prof- a competitive team, professional. Listen to me, I almost said professional, but a competitive team of beat baseball here in Minnesota." Minnesota, you know, Minnesota was the birthplace of beat baseball. 1975 was the fall of 1975 was the first World Series in uh, St. Paul. Wow, um, interesting. So, I mean, there's a lot of history here. Why not? Why not? Why don't we have a team? You know, let's. So we formed up a team. We got every and much of those same people who started with us in 2010 are still with us today. And it's you know this. There's a lot of teams with a lot of history, like the Austin Blackhawks or the Bayou City Heat or uh, the Tyler Tigers, who have teams who have stood the test of time, withstood the test of time, forgive me. Um, And that's all wonderful and great. But when you have your own team that you can play with and you've been playing with year in and year out, you build this synergy that is... It's a foundation. It's a. It's like a. Is like ha- what I was mentioning before, having an uncrumbling foundation. If your foundation is solid, everything else will fall into place. You know, if you have a good synergy, then 
everything will fall into place. And a lot of that will come into where defense gels on a field or people will bat and they know this. Everyone, everyone on a team knows everyone else's um, strengths and weaknesses. So you make that a, a consistency and you have fun both on the field and off the field. And, it be, and that's why the MBBA has so many teams are who are so much like a, a large family because on the field – we are we hate each other. We want to win. <laughs> That's the name of the game. And off yeah. the field, everyone is saying, "Hey, let's go eat together. Or let's 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 go have a cocktail or something." But it, it, it's so it, it's a it's an it's an addiction. It's a wonderful. It's an addiction that is not going to cause irrefutable damage. You know, which is wonderful. I'm living now in Minnesota. I have a ten year old daughter named Kaylee, who's the love of my life. And um, I have two stepdaughters, Taylor and Maddie, who I love dearly as well, too. I make my days as easy enough for me where I can still get all the work done that I need to get done for both my own company as well as the MBBA. But I can also at the same time have fun, stay healthy and and knock on wood, stay COVID-19 free. Right. I am uh, definitely curious, just going back to the baseball yeah, you know, in terms of, I would say, like in my case, I've I've only been playing for a handful of years, and I, I can really say this sport has absolutely changed my life, and given me a different outlook, and really given me more confidence in my life in general. Is that something that you can also relate to? Yes, in many different ways, in many different facets. I think the thing that beat baseball brings to the table for any individual who plays it is that it gives them the opportunity to first take the national pastime, adapt it, and make it something that you can play with others who are in like situations of your own. I think also there are people who have experienced it on a more grander scale that they've had to do this and it's been presented to them that you need to go and do this or try this out because you have no other alternatives. There are no other opportunities to pass go and collect two hundred dollars. Um, so, and those are life changing situations. That could be situations that might involve, in some instances, not my instances, but some instances, a situation that it's a parole officer saying to person on probation, "Hey, listen, I have a situation for you that I want you to go try out." It's a community. It's a community uh, uh, service situation, and I think you'll like it. And they end up liking it, and they stay for twenty years. I think in some other instances, there are people who have been nearly fatally killed because of situations that, or choices that they've made, that have not necessarily been the greatest. And someone says, "Hey, I found this situation that maybe you can try out. Maybe if you try this." It might turn your life around. So yes, in that respect, it's life-changing. It's an opportunity for people to go out, get moving, stay healthy, get fresh air, get sunshine, uh, get vitamin D from the sunshine, <laughs> and learn how to be a team player. Learn how to contribute to a team. There was a couple years ago, a lot of people saying, you know, there's no I in team, which is understandable. But not everything is 
about a specific individual, a team who goes out and gels together and plays defense and stops the other team from scoring and then comes back and starts batting and starts scoring runs. It's not one person winning that game. It's, it's the team. It's the, I mean, if anything, it's not the batters. It's not the people who are scoring the runs. It's the pitcher who's pitching the ball. But I mean, so between the pitcher and catcher, they're creating a, a situation where the batter can hit the ball in the best possible way. The pitcher's putting the ball on the bat, where, and the batter has to have a consistent swing. They have to hit the ball. They have to get to the base. They have to score. They're contributing to the success of that team. And it's, you know, this team building, nothing says more to me about team building than practices. There's no, there's no workouts. Maybe, well, I, I'll stand corrected on this, but there's, there's maybe a workout that's out there that can prepare you for playing beat baseball, but there is no, nothing in a gym that you can go and do that's going to prepare you for diving on that ground and stopping that ball or running over that base and scoring a run for your team after you've hit the ball, whether it be 40 and a half feet or 170 feet. So, I mean, uh, beat baseball is as close to being the best sport, if not the best sport in the world for blind or visually impaired people. There's a lot of people that will argue that goalball is, but goalball can only be played inside, theoretically. Um, but to me, I think beat baseball personally is the best sport anybody could play, no matter the instances. You could be, you could be homeless. You could be a computer programmer. You could be a teacher. You could be a college professor. You, it doesn't matter. Any walk of life, all those people come together as one, and if they learn how to gel as one, the the uh, the formula is success. No doubt, yeah. And even just as far as ages, I know, you know, there have been from teenagers up to people in their 70s. Roger Keating. Yeah. Roger Keating oh, yeah. has been around. He, he ran the 1987 World Series in Ithaca, New York, and he's still playing. He's over 70. Right. Um, yeah. And he's the head, and he runs the Athens, Athens Timberwolves. So I mean, yeah, it's a there's of course at some point for legal legal reasons, legalities. <laughs> uh, the youngest person we've ever have come into the league that has ever played and ever actually been part of beat baseball is the uh, second vice president of the NBA and pitcher for the Indy Thunder, Jared Woodard. He started in 2003 as a 12 year old pitching to his dad. Wow. And he wanted to pitch at the World Series. And we were all concerned about the safety reasons. Like, what if a, this 12-year-old gets a ball smacked right back at him and hit, <laughs> and hit in the head? You know, yeah. that's, it, that's a tremendous liability. But we took a shot. And look what he's turned into. It's, a, it's phenomenal. What he's, he's, it, he is one of the elite pitchers, if not the elite pitcher of the league. And he's consistent, and he's and he's he's uh, he's done wonderful with the public relations group and uh, social media with the for the NBBA, and he's a good guy. He's he's a good friend. It's a it, it it's a pleasure to work with him on as an officer on the board and also as as part of the board of directors. So he's um, but so I mean, there's any which way there's a there's a whole range of things there. You know, we 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 could spend a whole podcast on. Just speaking about specific individuals, whether it be female, male, people who are young or pe people who are old, 
You know, there's a there's a lot of great players out there still, and they still want to play. You know, I exactly. think the difference between between beat baseball players and baseball players is, of course, baseball players get paid to play. I can only imagine if the if the look anything is possible, <laughs> especially now since COVID nineteen, yep. anything is possible. So, if there was ever a, a situation in the future that beat baseball players could get paid, can you imagine being paid forty, fifty thousand dollars a year? And being told, all you have to do is train all year round to play beat baseball. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. That would be a dream for, and, for many and people. People would do it for 25000 But there are so many wonderful opportunities and individuals who are playing this sport. And whatever, you know, if it's been life-changing for them, uh, look, all the power to them. You know, let, let's try to make new, new heights. Let's reach for new heights as opposed to... You know, trying to keep, you know, the past is wonderful. The history is wonderful. In speaking with Bill Gibney, the first president of the NBA back in 1976, and I'll get into that in a second too, I'll tell you about that. Uh, speaking to him a couple of years ago, he said to me that never in his wildest imagination could he have ever seen the NBA the way it is today, back in 1976. Hmm. Never would he have ever thought it would have grown to this point that 2015, we had 24 teams at the World Series. It's a, it's phenomenal. I mean, wow. it's, it's unprecedented. You know, you know. look, when I first came into the league, when I was secretary in 2006, we had a World Series in Strongsville, Ohio. We had 13 teams there. I mean, it, the most they had maybe was 15 on a regular basis. In 1986, they had 22 in Stanford, California. In Palo Alto, uh, I should say. Um, but that was the most. I mean, I think in 1987, they had 20 or 22. But And all those individuals in Ithaca, New York, stayed in, in 1987, stayed in the dorms at uh, SUNY Ithaca, State University of New York at Ithaca. Uh, but, I mean, so it's not impossible. You know, it, I think the adage from Field of Dreams is if you build it, they will come. And, and beat baseball has overwhelmingly time and time again re-emphasize that theory no question yeah i'm curious as far as the you know the teams from what i understand there are roughly 30 teams or so as far as formal teams around the country and then there are you know teams internationally as well if you could kind of touch on just as far as the international game i know there's you know been teams from taiwan from toronto from the caribbean how has the nbba you know brought them on board and how have they gotten involved well, I, I'll be honest with you. It's uh, a lot of it stems from the uh, the long international reach that the Austin Blackhawks have, having always been. You know, YouTube is a wonderful thing. Anyone ever wants to see anything and everything about beat baseball, they can do searches for anything you can think of: beat baseball, blind baseball, anything, and you'll find tons and tons of baseball videos on YouTube. And you know, thanks to Graham Athena from is uh, from the Lone Star Roadrunners, and and uh, everyone knows Graham from his dad Frank, who's the infamous pitcher from the Fort Worth Roadrunners um, years ago. But Graham, his business is 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 a video production, and he's taken a lot of old time videos and made them possible from videotapes, and put them did and digitally remastered them and put them up on YouTube. 
So watching the 1983 World Series is not impossible. Watching the 1990 World Series is not impossible. The teams that we have, the Austin Blackhawks, single-handedly have been involved in every international team that has been part of the National Beat Baseball Association. 1997, they were in a mall doing a charitable event, and someone came by and said, hey, I have someone from Taiwan who's interested in beat baseball. Lo and behold, within, within a year, members of the Austin Blackhawks were on a plane going to Taiwan teaching them how to play beat baseball. Kevin and Wayne, Kevin and Wayne Simpson taught them everything they need to know, and then of course Taiwan comes back and starts beating up on Austin. <laughs> um, um, in the early 1990s, Kevin and Wayne Simpson also went up to Canada, and they did a beat baseball thing up there. It didn't really take take hold until maybe 2015, 2014, 2015, where Mark Demontis, the gentleman who is no more for uh, blind hockey. And who was also rollerbladed across the country of Canada, uh, came with a team to New York to play B baseball, the Toronto Blind Jays. And they, therein lies the beginning of the B baseball in Toronto, in the Dominican Republic, in the last several years. Of course, Kevin and Wayne Simpson went down to the Dominican Republic, were invited down to the Dominican Republic with a bunch of people from the, Dominic, uh, from the Austin Blackhawks. And they played in front of four thousand people in their in a in a stadium there, and wow. had the opportunity to interact with Pedro Martinez, the infamous pitcher from you know, the Boston Red Sox and the New York Yankees. Right. Um, yeah. And now, as late as October two thousand nineteen, Jamie and Jamie Simpson and company went over to Argentina uh, because one of their members, Mariano Reynoso, who's the treasurer of Sports Division 2020, the parent of the Austin Blackhawks, has family there and is originally from Argentina, and they taught them taught them down there how to play beat baseball. So is it possible that Argentina will have a team in the World Series in the future? Yeah. This is all as a, as a result of the support and, and, and thought process by, one, the Austin Blackhawks, and, of course, the support of the NBBA. You know, Dan Tracy was very instrumental, who was a, uh, a head umpire of ours years ago. He wrote the original rule book in 1998. Um, and um, he was instrumental in bringing the World Series to Taipei, Taiwan in 2000. That was the only time it's ever been out of the United States. Um, only uh, several teams went there at some point. And it was a combination of teams because it was horribly expensive. Hmm. But yeah, so that was the only time that we were outside of the United States for our World Series was 2000. I think I would have liked to go into that one. And I heard it was a wonderful experience. But, you know, you ever get the opportunity hmm. to speak to people like Janet Leonard and Neil McDonald and uh, other people at some point. Any You grab anybody that was... You just can ask them if you at the World Series. Hey, did you go to the 2000 World Series in Taiwan? And they say, yeah. Tell me about it. You know, the, the stories are endless. Uh, um, yeah, I definitely love to have a lot of the names you're dropping, you know, on the podcast. I think there's just so much, so much great stuff to share and talk about. Sure. We don't have any current contact with the fathers of beat baseball. Bill Gibney. I mean, actually, there's one that I have contact with. Denny Uberty, uh, John Ross. 
John Ross was uh, started uh, was one of was probably the 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 person who led the the charge for beat baseball in Minnesota years ago. He wrote uh, "Feeling Sports," uh, "Feeling Sport" um, by the Braille Sports Foundation. It that uh, we had a copy of it in Braille is available at the as part of the Hall of Fame records that Kevin Barrett maintains and curates. Like I said, Bill Gibney, John Ross, Denny Ubity. Uh, Jim Quinn, the uh, the person that is the the highest honor that you can give an athlete in beat baseball. It's named after him. He was the Ted Williams of beat baseball. Jim Mastro, Dr. Jim Mastro, is a retired professor now from Bemidji State University and has uh, taught kinesiology and uh, was a former president of the NBBA and was also a board member of USABA and there's a, a wonderful man to, to speak to as well, too. But, uh, you know, there was a Dirty Dozen back in 1976 that all got together in Chicago. Who the Dirty Dozen specifically was, I don't know. But I know that John Ross, Denny Ubity, Bill Gibney, and uh, Dave Miller uh, from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, um, etc. There's a bunch of different people there. They all hashed out the layout of the NBBA as we know it today. That would be the Articles of Incorporation. That would be the original bylaws and such. Um, they laid all that out and how we were all going to do this because beat baseball prior to that was kind of haphazardly played. Like, you know, for the longest time, if you're going back and there was a video that was that I saw on Facebook in the last year or so that beat baseball has signs of it being played as early as the 1940s but they uh the blind individuals had it when they hit the ball they had to follow a rope to a base and you couldn't run you had to walk hmm. um but the a superintendent of a school for the blind is, is the one that really got that all that ball rolling because he, he said why shouldn't they be uh take part in sports you know there's there are much people as anybody else so th there's a lot of long-reaching history ralph rock out in san francisco had a version of beat baseball being played and uh there was a version here with john ross and they tried all to get together and uh, if what information i know is that the people in san francisco didn't like the way we played beat baseball and vice versa but we had our first World Series in fall of 1975, and it was the final game was between um, the St. Paul Gorillas and Phoenix Thunderbirds, and I, the St. Paul Gorillas won it 39 to 27. Wow. So you you look at that, you look at a, a game like that, you know, you look and you tra you transpose it now to a game today between say Houston and Indianapolis Thunder in the last couple of years, you know. The better the the better the pitchers are, the more consistent they are. Uh, the better the batter is going to be, and the more runs going to score. Unfortunately, it doesn't make for a great defensive game. So right now, the game is looked at, at right now as being an offensive game. So there are always these opportunities that people say, "Well, let's make it more of a defensive game. Let's uh, let's lengthen the bases to 105 feet. Let's uh, let's make the home run a more active part of the World Series." Let's make it 170 or 160 feet. Um, let's cut the balls and strikes down. Let's get it down to where we have 
no ball, no passes, no balls, and three strikes. So there's always different. Everyone has an opinion as to what's a better way to make the game even better or closer to the game of be, uh, of baseball as we can. But I think right now it's it's fine the way it is. I think you're starting to see a, a better caliber of defense played at the top tier of the teams that are out there. The Indianapolis Thunders, who uh, Thunder team, who now have won four championships. The Austin Blackhawks, who had a run in the 1990s, who won seven championships. The 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 West Coast Dogs, who went on runs of three at a time in in the shot. The Taiwan home run, who have also done that. So, are there dynasties? Of course, there are dynasties. You know, they're not the New York Yankees. They're not the 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 uh, if you will the uh, the Houston Astros, who are picking off everyone's signs. But, I mean, you, you have all these wonderful teams that are all together that have all built over time, and they make the sport exciting. To me, the most excitement for me is when it comes time for playing games on Tuesday morning, because right now our format of our World Series is that we play round-robin games on Tuesday, and then we start our championship round on Wednesday through Saturday. Saturday is the, la- the, last, the last game of the dance. Um, and... I'm I'm wanting and ready to go out and play beat baseball right now. I want to go play a round robin tournament. Oh, I want to yeah. go play Same some here. ball, and it's it's it, it it it's a shame that we can't. Uh, but for obvious reason, hopefully this will be something of the past. The COVID nineteen, uh, me personally as myself, and also as secretary of the NBBA, I can say that as far as I know, as of right now. Um, the MBBA has been healthy and remained healthy. Um, we've had one person who came down with it, and now they're in. They're they're doing better now. They're feeling better. So, and knock on wood, thankfully, we haven't had any uh, any losses as a result of COVID nineteen. But yes, the, the the sport, as you can tell by my ramblings and my. Uh, um, my randomness is uh, is addictive. No doubt, yeah. I did want to just briefly go back to the... We were talking about the international reach of the game. Right. And I know there is there is a push and an effort to try and get baseball into the Paralympics. Can you touch on that? And do you have any kind of updates on that? Or what's kind of the status there? Well, you know, it. it there's a lot of... everyone. Everyone wanting it to be into the Paralympics is a... It's a wonderful thing. The reality is, according to the International Olympic Committee and the Paralympic Committee, beat baseball needs to be on four continents and four countries per continent. And hmm. we are not there just yet. Right. Um, I, I think at some point, if people take the position that they... Um, they they want to do anything possible to make beat baseball a, as part of the Paralympics. That's a wonderful thing, but you have to walk before you have to crawl before you walk and walk before you run. And I think we're really in a walking stage at this point. I think the effort that the Blackhawks have provided us with their efforts with Argentina, Dominican Republic, Canada, Taiwan is wonderful. I think it needs to be expanded further. There is another um, version of baseball for the blind out there that's played with a ball that has a bell in it. 
they demonstrated that in in 2012 at, in Ames, and it was okay, you know. But there are some rules that leave a lot to be desired. There's no there's no pitcher pitching the ball to you. You have to hit the ball only to the left side of the field. You have to hit the ball so it hits the ground before it goes into the outfield. So there's no high fly home runs. Right. And baseball is so absolutely different from that. So, look, you know, there's a push from them that they want to they want to bring their sport to the to the Olympics, but they're less of a situation than what we are. You know, they have they have programs in Cuba and Germany and France, and that's all fine and good, and that may all sound cosmetically wonderful, but beat baseball has a greater population than the sport of baseball for the blind, which is originally out of Italy. And I, I, I applaud those people who are working with that sport to do all that they can. But I think beat baseball is further along. And I think we have greater contacts and networking that we have established in the last 10 years uh, that will be more beneficial for us in the future than any other sport. Absolutely. So, I mean, you know, if people want to add to this effort, it's great to start a, a team in your own local community. I, I welcome it. I suggest it. I Contact me at secretary at mbba.org to see what you can do to start a team in your local community. All the more is better. If you're in a foreign country, if you're in, a, if you're in Australia or New Zealand or the Asia, in China, Japan, etc., South Korea, North Korea, it doesn't matter. Anywhere else in the world, England. Um, and we've had some interest for people in England playing beat baseball. But again, it, a lot of it is a, is a, is a monumental task. It, unfortunately, in a, to initially start a team, there's a lot of required out-of-pocket expenses. And if most people who want to start a team are not thinking about do I have to make a nonprofit organization? Um, there's a lot of ways of working around that. But if anyone's interested, secretary at mbba.org, or of course, reach out to the outreach committee at outreach at mbba.org. Um, but we're, we're, we're all for creating more teams and more places in the world and in, within the United States. And we want to help and we want to make it better for everybody. Cool. Well, hey, I, I just want to thank you so much, Steve, for joining us here on the Eyes Free Sports Podcast. Really appreciate the time, and I appreciate everything you do and what NBBA does, uh, you know, to further this this awesome game. You're very welcome. I enjoyed the time. I, I hope I didn't go too far off of tangent, but it's <laughs> you know, it's it it's a wonderful thing to talk to talk about. It's a wonderful thing to play, and it's a wonderful group to be associated with. It's a uh, I know you as a as a newer member to the league. It's a it, it, you're like a sponge wanting to soak up everything you possibly can. But thank you for having me on the podcast. And anyone who's interested, you can go to www.nbba.org and visit us and join us and play with us, play ball with us. Absolutely. All right. Thanks again, Steve. Appreciate it. Thank you. Be sure to follow the Eyes Free Sports podcast at facebook.com slash eyesfreesports and on Twitter at eyesfreesports. Eyes Free Sports.